This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. The one thing we should say about Barbara is that uh, she is more than any other journalist responsible for Ahmadinejad. Uh, <laughs> that is her single biggest uh, gift to uh, Iranian politics because uh, I think one could really map a change of heart by Khamenei to decide to not back, uh, not allow Rafsanjani to become the president after her interview with Rafsanjani's family. And word on the street was that they got very worried. She did an interview with, when one of the Rafsanjani's said that uh, if Papa becomes uh, uh, the president, Papa is going to limit the influence of Khamenei, who is the spiritual leader. Make him like the king of England. And Mr. Khamenei does not like to become the king of England. He more likes to become like the Stalin of Russia rather than the king of England. So literally, on the Wednesday before the election, uh, Khamenei changed his uh, side and ordered his supporters to back uh, Ahmadinejad. this is really much of this, not that it is directly correlated to Barbara, but Barbara's has definitely was an important uh, reminder to Khamenei that there is a person out there that is trying to make him the king of England. Uh, and uh, fortunately, the book is outside, available. This is her new entry into the field of Iranian studies. And again, with many apologies to all of you, uh, Barbara. I had no idea that I was that powerful. <laughs> um, no, seriously, though, I'm a, a, a journalist by background. I've worked for many publications, including the New York Times, The Economist, and most recently USA Today, where I've worked for the last 11 years, although this year I'm on leave as a fellow at the U.S. Institute of Peace, which is a, a think tank in, in, in Washington. Um, I first went to Iran in 1996. Uh, Like many journalists who go there, I was hooked, and uh, USA Today was kind enough to send me back six times. Um, I decided to write this book uh, after my last trip to Iran because I was quite worried uh, at the rhetoric that the Bush administration was using about Iran. It sounded eerily familiar, uh, like the case that Bush had made against Iraq in 2002. There were the same elements, weapons of mass destruction, support for terrorism, and abuse of human rights. And I thought that it was incumbent on me to write what I knew about Iran, uh, to try to demystify the country a little bit, and also what I knew about the history of uh, U.S. and Iran uh, contacts and efforts largely failed to improve relations over the last 10 years been very fortunate as a diplomatic correspondent for USA Today to follow U.S. policy toward Iran and then go to Iran and see the impact uh, on Iran of those uh, policies. So I've been a little bit like a ping-pong ball back and forth between the two. Um, I never thought I was responsible for Ahmadinejad, but perhaps that explains why he gave me an interview in 2006 out of gratitude that I had given him this election, even though I didn't know that that was uh, the case. It's hard to think of two countries with a more difficult history than the United States and Iran. In in my book, I compare them to a once-happily-married couple that's gone through a bitter divorce. Uh, Harsh words have been exchanged. Husband and wife have even come to blows and employed others to inflict more punishment 
apologizing is hard and changing behavior even harder. The relationship is unequal, with one side or the other feeling more vulnerable at any given time and afraid that the other will take advantage of concessions. Attempts to reconcile have come to naught, well-intentioned intermediaries failed, and unsavory go-betweens profited at the couple's expense. Relatives and friends have argued for and against reconciliation, each wanting credit for restoring the marriage or convincing the couple that they're better off apart. Uh, there are many ironies in this relationship. The government that Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice once called an outpost of tyranny arose from a revolution against a tyrannical regime that had been backed by the United States. The Iranian students who seized the U.S. Embassy in 1979 and took U.S. diplomats hostage were copying tactics used by American students only a few years earlier protesting the Vietnam War. Both countries are proud and nationalistic, and both have real grievances against each other. Uh, besides the hostage crisis, Iran is responsible for the deaths of probably 700 uh, American military men in Lebanon in the 1980s and in Iraq more recently. And, of course, Iranians recall that the CIA overthrew an, a, a very popular prime minister, Mohammad Mossadegh, in 1953, and even graver backed Iraq in the Iran-Iraq War. This was an eight-year war in the 1980s that killed over a quarter of a million Iranians. Yet despite this, Iran was virtually the only Muslim country where people came out on the streets and spontaneously demonstrated in, in sympathy with the United States after 9-11. Uh, attacks that, as you know, were carried out not by Iranians, but mostly by Sunni uh, Arabs from Saudi Arabia and Egypt. And uh, Iran helped the United States overthrow the Taliban in Afghanistan uh, after 9-11, only to be branded a member of the Axis of Evil by President Bush in his 2002 State of the Union address. Uh, my book is about a lot of things. It's about Iran internally. It's got a chapter on the lovely Mr. Ahmadinejad, the Revolutionary Guard Corps, the clerics, the students, the reform movement, all of these. But the real heart of it for me and the real reason I wrote it uh, was to talk about missed opportunities for reconciliation. And I begin with the first President Bush, uh, George Bush's father, who actually was amenable to improving ties with Iran. He said in his inaugural address, goodwill begets goodwill. And it was a signal to the Iranians that if they helped engineer the release of, of a few remaining American hostages in Lebanon, who were being held by Iran-backed uh, Shiite Muslim groups in Lebanon, that the U.S. would be open to improving ties. I interviewed Brent Scowcroft for the book. He was the national security advisor for the first President Bush. And he said that they got lots of messages from various intermediaries saying that Iran was interested in a dialogue. And Scowcroft told these intermediaries, we're happy to do it. We could have it official, public, or private citizen to private citizen any way you want it. He said that the U.S. and Iran went so far as to actually agree to have a meeting in Geneva in uh, 1990. But at the last minute, the Iranians got cold feet and they pulled out. The Clinton administration came in with a, a tougher policy called dual containment. This was sanctions and pressure against both Iraq and Iran, even though they're very different countries were then and remain so today. Um, and it was Clinton who actually put a total embargo on uh, U.S. investment in Iran's oil sector, U.S. trade with Iran. This was in 1995. He was under pressure from APEC, the American-Israel uh, Public Affairs Committee, and also from the Republican-led Congress. Congress had just shifted hands. And, in, and Clinton also signed into law something called the Iran-Libya Sanctions Act, which was a, a piece of legislation that threatened punishment uh, of foreign oil companies 
that invested in Iran's oil industry. So he completely clamped down and relations hit rock bottom under Clinton's first term. But then something surprising happened. It happened in Iran. In 1997, Iran got a new president, and it was a surprise, as Ahmadinejad was, but a surprise in a different direction, a reformer named Mohammad Khatami. And Khatami, uh, one of the first things he did was give an interview to Christian Amanpour of CNN, where he called for a dialogue of civilizations between the United States and Iran. He opened the door to all sorts of unofficial exchanges between the two countries. He said this would lay the groundwork for an improvement in ties. And I was lucky enough to be in Iran in 1998 when uh, a team of American wrestlers went to Tehran. It was the first group of American athletes to go to Iran since the 1979 revolution. And they were very nervous about what kind of reception they would get. Um, they shouldn't have been. The Iranians cheered for them more than they did for their own team. And I remember the American flag was flying in Azadi Stadium in Tehran, and it was the first time I'd seen a flag flying there, and it wasn't being burned in an anti-American demonstration. Uh, Clinton followed up with this pin-down diplomacy with more overtures. He sent a message to the Iranians through the Saudis that he wanted a formal dialogue and even named three senior administration officials who would be part of this. Uh, this was also in 1998, but the Iranians did not reply. Clinton didn't give up. Uh, he sent a letter to President Hatemi asking for Iranian cooperation in resolving uh, the issue of who was responsible for a terrorist attack in Saudi Arabia uh, at a U.S. airbase called Kobar Towers in 1996. There were a lot of rumors that Iranians had somehow backed the Saudi Shiites who had carried this out. Uh, this time Hatemi did reply, but he replied by saying Iran had nothing to do with it. Still, Clinton continued, there was a slight easing of sanctions on pistachio nuts and carpets and U.S. agricultural <coughs> products going to Iran. And in 2000, then-Secretary of State Madeleine Albright gave a major speech where she basically apologized for the 1953 CIA coup, which had deposed uh, Mossadegh and put the Shah back on the throne. And she also expressed regret for the U.S. support of Iraq during the Iran-Iraq war. But she did something which I think uh, even she, in hindsight, would acknowledge was a mistake. It's a, a mistake that has been continued and compounded by the Bush administration. She sought to distinguish between the elected portions of the Iranian government and what she called the unelected hands that determine so much of Iranian policy. She was saying basically we could do business with Hatemi, but not with Iran's supreme leader, uh, a Shiite cleric named Ali Khamenei. Now, He's called the supreme leader for a reason. There is no way that Hatemi could have affected a reconciliation with the United States, a strategic change of this magnitude, without the full support and endorsement of the supreme leader. And you don't get his support by disrespecting him and calling him unelected. In fact, he is actually chosen by a body which is elected by the Iranians, uh, a group called the Assembly of Experts. So it's technically not even completely true. Um, be that as it may, I think I would argue that by the end of the Clinton administration, uh, U.S.-Iran relations were on an upward tra trajectory, and certainly there was more good feeling between the two countries than uh, had existed in the previous 25 years. So now we come to this administration. Uh, it's ironic to recall that many Iranians actually wanted George W. Bush to win. They thought that Al Gore would be more beholden to pro-Israel groups as a Democrat. They you know, remembered the sanctions that had been put on uh, by, by Clinton. And they also thought that Bush and Vice President Cheney as 
oil men would be very receptive to improving U.S. relations with such a major oil producer in the Persian Gulf. And at first, there were some positive signs from the Iranian perspective. Uh, Richard Haas, who was a senior official in the first Bush term, tried to limit the extension of the Iran-Libya Sanctions Act to only two years instead of the full five. But Congress, in its great wisdom, decided to renew it for the full five. And then we come to 9-11. As I mentioned, Iranians demonstrated spontaneously in support of the United States. And the Iranian government also sent major signals that it was eager to cooperate with the United States uh, against the Taliban and al-Qaeda. Mohammad Hatimi came to the United Nations in November of 2001, and uh, the Iranians at the UN let an American diplomat know that Hatimi was going to be bringing an unusually large delegation with him that would include uh, experts from the Revolutionary Guard on al-Qaeda and the Taliban. And the implication was that they were willing to begin a counterterrorism dialogue, a former counterterrorism dialogue with the United States. And Hatimi also asked permission to visit Ground Zero and pay his respects to the victims of 9-11. However, according to this diplomat, uh, she passed this up the line to her superior, but her superior did not want to push it. He sensed that the uh, White House was not going to be amenable to these requests, and so there was no, no recognition of them and nothing was done. Nevertheless, there was some diplomatic progress that was made, which I didn't know about until 2003. The U.S. and Iran began high-level consultations in, in Europe. There were more than a dozen meetings in Geneva and Paris from the fall of 2001 through May of 2003 on a deputy foreign minister level, deputy secretary of state senior level. They were led on the U.S. side by Ryan Crocker, who's now our ambassador in, in Iraq, and later by Zami Khalilzad, who's now our ambassador at the U.N., and on the Iranian side by individuals such as Javad Zarif, who is, uh, was their U.N. ambassador, was a former deputy foreign minister. And these weren't talks about some grand bargain. These were very concrete, practical negotiations, discussions about uh, what to do about Afghanistan, how to stabilize the country, what to do about al-Qaeda members who were fleeing Afghanistan through Iran. And in fact, uh, the U.S. gave uh, Iran names of some of these people, and the Iranians arrested a lot of them. Some of them they deported to their home countries. Some of them they held on to uh, as potential bargaining chips. Uh, they also talked, began to talk about Iraq. In fact, uh, quite prophetically, uh, Javad Zarif, in one of the last meetings that was held in the spring of 2003, uh, he warned the United States. He said that, uh, that uh, you know, you're going to go into, Iran, into Iraq and you think they're going to greet you as liberators, but he said, quote, Iraqis will take matters into their own hands. This will happen and you will accuse Iran of being behind it. Um, at the same time these talks were proceeding, Iran's then ambassador in, in France, a man named Sadiq Karzi, prepared uh, an agenda for comprehensive negotiations between the two countries, and I've printed this in the annex to, to my book. It's an extraordinary document. There's some controversy over it. We can talk about it a little bit in the Q&A if you want. Uh, some uh, neoconservatives have suggested that it's not Iranian at all, that the Swiss somehow made this up. Well, it was transmitted through the Swiss, who represent U.S. interests in Iran, but it was very much an Iran document. I interviewed Sadek Karazi and Javad Zarif and others who were involved in its, in its preparation. And it lists, it's an agenda for talks. It lists Iranian aims and U.S. aims for negotiations and at the end it has a, a mechanism for beginning these talks with simultaneous announcements in Tehran and Washington and uh, a willingness to begin a dialogue in, quote, mutual respect. Well, 
this document comes into the State Department. It excited some interest uh, among those who first saw it. But it was early May 2003, and President Bush had just declared mission accomplished on the deck of that aircraft carrier. And the feeling in Washington was basically, at least in the White House and Donald Rumsfeld's Pentagon, uh, who cares? We don't need them. They've just sent this because they're scared stiff that they're going to be next, so we'll ignore it. And so they did. No reply. No answer. Now, let me remind you, at that time, Mohammed Hatami was the president, not Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. Iran had no centrifuges spinning in Natanz, its uranium enrichment facility, and the U.S. position in Iraq was certainly a lot more favorable than it is today. Um, nevertheless, there were other attempts at outreach that, that took place even after Hatami left office and Ahmadinejad came in. Um, there were overtures by Ahmadinejad himself. He wrote a, a letter, sent a message through the Swiss to the White House asking for direct flights between New York and Tehran. This was in early 2006. He had been at the United Nations in that previous September and had met with Iranian Americans and asked basically, what can I do for you? What will make your life easier? And they said, how about direct flights between New York and Tehran? So he asked for this. Again, there was no reply. When I interviewed him in February of 2006, I asked him about an idea that had been floating around that the U.S. might send some diplomats back to Tehran just to process visas. As it is now, because we have no diplomatic relations, Iranians who want to travel to this country have to go to Dubai or Turkey to first apply for a visa. Then they have to go back a second time to actually get the visa and then, of course, fly to the States. So it's a very cumbersome and expensive process. So I asked him, you know, if you really want to help Iranian Americans and Iranians who want to travel to the States, why not let a few American diplomats come back to Tehran? And he looked at me and he said, well, what about my proposal for direct flights? So, you know, it was clear that that had been meant as a kind of overture, a kind of trial balloon, and once again it had been shot down. I also interviewed... Uh, the then National Security Advisor of Iran, a man named Ali Larijani. Uh, he was then also Iran's uh, chief nuclear negotiator. And um, I talked to him about, uh, you know, contacts with the United States, and he said Iran had no objections to contacts with the United States. And he did something also that was rather extraordinary. I had heard that Larijani, uh, is a very erudite man, had written his doctoral dissertation on the German philosopher Immanuel Kant, so I thought, well, let me ask him a sort of off-the-wall question. I asked him, what American philosophers, what American thinkers do you admire? And he looked at me and he said, I admire very much your Mr. Headley. And I said, who? He said, yes, Mr. Headley. And I said, Headley, Headley. I said, do you mean Hadley, Stephen Hadley, our national security advisor? And he looked at me and he said, yes, he said, he's a logical thinker. Well, those of you who are of Iranian extraction know what taruf means. This was obviously elaborate praise, somewhat over-the-top fulsome praise, but it was also meant to be a signal. And he went further. He designated a deputy, a man named Mohammad Javad Jafari, to set up back-channel talks with Hadley or a designated deputy. This was in the winter of 2006. Guess what? Bush administration did not pick this up. At the time, they were looking to ice, beginning to isolate and pressure Iran over its nuclear program, which had resumed uh, under Ahmadinejad, and they felt the timing was wrong. Uh, so Larry Johnny went further. In March of 2006, he accepted a prior U.S. proposal for talks just about Iraq. This had been a U.S. suggestion Condi Rice had made in the fall of 2005. And a week later, Iran's supreme leader, 
Ayatollah Khamenei himself came out and endorsed the notion of U.S.-Iran talks about Iraq, something he had never done before. In the past, anyone proposing such talks would have been accused of treason. But he endorsed it. Guess what? Once again, the U.S. did not accept the Iranian offer, the Iranian acceptance of the U.S.'s own offer. Talks finally did take place, but over a year later. But damage had been done. Larry Johnny had been weakened, and Khamenei had been humiliated. And I think this was another incentive for Khamenei to tilt even more strongly toward Ahmadinejad, which was probably his inclination anyway. Uh, because once again a trial balloon had been shot down. Now in May of 2006, Condoleezza Rice did say that the U.S. would participate. There had been talks when the, when the U.S. rejected, did not reply to Iran's offer of talks in 2003. When the U.S. did not reply, the Europeans stepped into the breach, and Iran and three European countries had negotiations, discussions about the nuclear program from 2003 through 2005. Uh, and so Condi Rice announced in uh, May 2006 that the U.S. would be willing to join these talks if Iran would first suspend its uranium enrichment program. And she presented this as, you know, a, a huge change, and, and, you know, it was an important uh, offer in a way, although it was not a reversal of 28 years of U.S. foreign policy since Clinton had offered to talk, President Bush the first had offered to talk, and there actually had been talks under Bush's first term. Uh, talks that, that broke up in May 2003 after, I must confess, I had the temerity to write about them on the front page of USA Today. And once they were revealed, the administration, particularly the White House, was very embarrassed to be caught talking to evil. You remember that Bush put Iran on the axis of evil. And so the U.S. shut down the talks. There were some bombings, al-Qaeda bombings in Saudi Arabia that took place shortly after this uh, revelation came out, and the U.S. said that al-Qaeda detainees in Iran were somehow implicated in this and that Iran was somehow responsible. I think that was bogus. I think that was a pretext to end those talks. So anyway, Condi presented this as a huge concession, and she seemed to really believe that Iran was just going to jump for joy and, and, and jump at the chance to, to talk to the United States after this grand offer that she had made. But once again, she did something which I mentioned Madeleine Albright had done, but you know, she did this, Bush has done this many times. I asked her at the press conference where she announced this concession, this overture, does this mean that the U.S. is finally acknowledging the legitimacy of the Iranian government after nearly 30 years? And she said, no, she said, what we're acknowledging is the legitimacy of the negotiating process. She also said that she hoped that there would be better relations between the Iranian people and the American people, and that the Iranian government would allow that to happen. Again, this distinction between the regime, the parts we don't like, and the parts we do. And if you notice, President Bush, whenever he talks about Iran, makes overtures to the Iranian people and disrespects the Iranian government, basically tells the Iranian people, we would like you to overthrow your government, and then we will have a wonderful relationship. Now, this is an offer that I think is easy to refuse, and guess what? The Iranians have refused it. They've refused it ever since. So where are we now? It's not 2003. It's not even 2006. Um, I would argue that the U.S. and Iran are – that the United States is in a much worse strategic position uh, than it was certainly in 2003 and even in 2006. Uh, 
Iran has continued its program, and despite this new national intelligence estimate, it's continued the uranium enrichment program. The latest estimate is that it could have enough material for a bomb, if it wants to go that route, uh, by the beginning of the next decade. Uh, Iran-backed clients are much stronger wherever you look. Hamas has taken over half of Palestine. Hezbollah in Lebanon is preventing the selection of a new president. Uh, and of course in Iraq, Shiite groups that had been supported by Iran for many years and new ones that Iran is now backing are very influential. They run the government. Uh, the United States did Iran a favor by taking out the Taliban in Afghanistan and Saddam Hussein in Iraq and vastly increased the sphere in which Iran can operate in that part of the world. So I would argue that in a sense, U.S.-Iran talks make more sense now than they ever did before because the United States, for the first time in 30 years, really needs Iranian cooperation in a way that it hasn't. I think Iran still needs the United States. Despite its increased influence in the region, its domestic situation is not good. The economic situation is very poor. Ahmadinejad has squandered his $100 a barrel oil uh, by giving handouts to the poor, by using language about the Holocaust and Israel that has terrified investors, Iranian and foreign alike, and that has led, I think, to the UN Security Council putting more sanctions on, uh, sanctions on Iran and the United States imposing more sanctions, Europeans imposing more sanctions on Iranian banks, which have really had an impact on trade and investment in that country. Uh, you know, maybe I helped Ahmadinejad, but I would argue that he's, he is part of a neoconservative plot uh, to isolate and hurt Iran because he's hurt his own country more than any Iranian leader, I think, uh, that has been there certainly since the revolution in 1979. So I'll end on a somewhat hopeful note that despite all of the missed opportunities for reconciliation, despite all the missed signals uh, and the harsh words, that perhaps the logic is uh, of the the strategic environment is such that the United States and Iran will have to begin some kind of negotiating process, if not under this administration, then certainly under, under the next. And I'll stop there and be happy to take any questions that you might have about Iran internally or about the diplomacy surrounding it. Yes, all the way in the back. My main question to you as someone who's uh, researched this and interviewed the people concerned at the two governments is the sense that you get, especially from the American government, regarding the menace that Iran poses to the world. It's as great a menace really as it is. Um, then they could get together with the Europeans and see to it that Iran does not sell oil. They could really impose tough sanctions. And these sanctions that they have imposed, they're really some of the secondary and tertiary in terms of mm -hmm. their impact on the economy, mm -hmm. which would then weaken the government somehow or motivate people to rise against the government. And there's plenty of other things they can do. Mm -hmm. um, so my sense is that perhaps really a lot of this uh, is PR. Um, or inside the U.S. and within the West, that Iran is such a great menace, mm. yet they really are not doing what 
Yeah, you know, it's it's a very good question because Iran, in a sense, was an afterthought. I mentioned the axis of evil speech of 2002. You know, Bush knew he wanted to call Iraq, Saddam's Iraq, evil. And then his speechwriters came up with this line, axis of evil. So he wanted to have two more, although actually one would have been sufficient, right? I don't know. You don't, do you have to have three? I guess you have to have three. And so, okay, North Korea was sort of easy. And then they were kind of casting about, and, and they decided on Iran. And, you know, I asked Condi Rice, I said, did you know what an impact that would have in Iran on the reform movement, you know, which had been helpful to the United States, had been reaching out to the United States to some extent by putting them on the axis of evil. And she said, I didn't know what impact it would have in the United States. She didn't even think about it. You know, she thought that the headline coming out of that speech was going to be U.S. out to promote democracy in the Middle East. You know, this was the first time they talked about that. And I was really stunned that they, they did this in such a cavalier fashion. Uh, then I think, you know, they got very full of themselves and, and emboldened after knocking out the Taliban, after getting rid of Saddam so quickly. There was a sense of hubris, that, and particularly in the Pentagon among the Rummies crowd and, and in Cheney's office. Aha, you know, look at us. We can change the map. We can really do this. And so there really was a sense, we'll get rid of the Syrian regime, we'll get rid of the Iranian regime, it's going to be easy, you know. But you're right, they never really put their money where their mouth was because the Europeans didn't really share the same assessment. The, uh, the actions that the Bush administration had taken already, getting rid of Saddam and so on, had already kicked the price of oil up from $20 a barrel when he came into office to, you know, $60, $70 a barrel. And so the Europeans certainly weren't willing to forego uh, oil from a major producer. And you could never have gotten the Chinese and, uh, and the Russians on board with that. So we're kind of stuck, you know, in a situation where we've had a very incoherent U.S. policy, where the rhetoric has been very harsh. You know, we won't take the military option off the table, World War III, if they get the ability, the know-how to make a weapon, not even the nuclear weapon, but just the know-how. And yet the tools have been, have been rather uh, meager. And there hasn't been an, a full and sincere effort at negotiations, because if they really wanted to negotiate with Iran, they would stop you know, disrespecting the supreme leader. They would stop making overtures to the people over the heads of the, the government officials. They would agree to meet without preconditions instead of setting preconditions that they knew Iran would not accept. So, you know, I, I, I think you're right. I, I see Iran very much the way our, our new uh, defense secretary, Bob Gates, sees it as a challenge, not a threat. I don't think Iran is a threat to U.S. interests in a really profound way. I don't think Iran would even attack Israel if it had the opportunity. But it is a challenge. It is a definite challenge. And it's one that has grown much, much bigger since Bush came to office. Yes? I wonder if you could talk a little about uh, heading forward after the Bush administration. I mean, uh, compare and contrast what we get with uh, McCain versus, mm -hmm. say, an Obama administration, someone who has sung about bombing Iran versus someone who talks openly about yeah. uh, wanting to reconcile with, with uh, you know, people we haven't agreed with very much. So, so what, uh, for, for both of those scenarios, our Clinton one, mm -hmm. um, what, what are your ideas on that? Well, it, it's always impossible to judge what politicians will really do once they're in power. With you know, you, they say a lot of things when they're when they're running for office, and and uh, and they usually don't uh, do exactly what they say. But Obama has been the most uh, clear and forthright. He said in an interview with the New York Times that he would engage in aggressive personal diplomacy with Iran, and he said that he'd be willing to meet Ahmadinejad. 
Um, whereas, the, whereas Clinton has said she's been, she'd be willing to engage in negotiations, but that she would not herself engage in any meetings, at least not initially. Now, McCain sounds tough. He certainly has talked about the military uh, option, but uh, I know John McCain a little bit, and I know his concerns about the U.S. military and what's become of them since uh, Bush blundered his way into Iraq. And I frankly think that even he would probably be willing to engage in some sort of negotiating process. Uh, I know some of the people who advise him, people like Rich Armitage, who've supported negotiations with Iran. And so I think he, he talks tough, but he would have a, a more nuanced strategy. So I'm really I'm, I'm optimistic that the next administration will be more flexible. As I mentioned, I think the, the situation in the region, the, the fact that Iran has so many more cards to play, will oblige whoever the next president is to, to deal with Iran from a more realistic uh, basis. Yes. Yes, uh, I think some of the audience may be aware of this, that um, there is a notorious prison in Tehran called the Evin Prison. Yes. Um, where since the creation of the Islamic Republic, thousands of Iranians have been tortured and uh, executed. This is documented well by Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, and others, United Nations. Um, so based on that, the fact that every single year since the creation of the regime, um, the human rights of Iranians have been brutally violated. Uh, stoning to death, torture, amputations, just amputation happened a few weeks ago. Another student was killed uh, in prison a few weeks ago. So it seems pretty clear that the regime is definitely a threat to the Iranian people, at least. Yes. You know, that's, that's definitely proven. Um, so my... my um, question to you since you, you go there um, on, a, on a regular basis is, have you had contact with um, either Iranians who've been tortured, uh, imprisoned by the yeah. regime, or family members of people who've been executed? As you know, there is a, there is a cemetery uh, in Tehran where really uh, unknown number of people, because it's not, it's not clear how many people were put there, but basically where they were put in a mass grave. Yeah. And their families are even prevented usually from going there to mourn the, you know, the death of, the, yeah. of their sons and daughters. Uh, I do write about this in my book. I have a, a, a chapter on the opposition movements in Iran, both inside and outside the country. Um, and I've uh, interviewed people like Akbar Ganji, who's a very famous Iranian dissident, was imprisoned for six years uh, by the regime, uh, actually imprisoned even under Hatami, because he wrote a series of articles that implicated Rafsanjani, among others, in the murder of uh, Iranian dissidents abroad and intellectuals in Iran. So uh, absolutely. You know, I think... What I argue, though, and, and what I feel as someone who has uh, – I was a Russian major in college. I lived in the old Soviet Union. I lived in China in the early 1980s. And I think what we've seen is the pattern is that when uh, the United States uh, uh, begins to engage with countries, with regimes like this, Sometimes the pressure is released a little bit on, on dissidents. The scapegoat is removed. You know, you can't say, oh, you're a traitor, you're working for the United States if the government has better relations with the U.S. And there's a tendency for, uh, for personal freedoms to improve somewhat. Uh, obviously, China and Russia are still repressive in many ways, but I would argue certainly much better in, in terms of personal freedom than they were 20, 30 years ago. And I think that what's happened is that since the U.S., uh, since the Bush administration rebuffed the overtures from the Hatami government, 
Iran has become more repressive. The the uh, hardline elements in the country, the so-called neoconservatives in Iran, as, as many there call them, basically said to the reformers, look, you tried and look what you got. You got nothing for your overtures, nothing. So we're going to do it our way. And they began disqualifying reformers from running for parliament and other uh, high offices. And the first the, the city councils, the parliament, and then the presidency uh, went into the hands of the more conservative factions. And initially, Ahmadinejad was careful. He didn't want to alienate the entire population. So they, they were a little careful. They didn't crack down on women for not wearing the veil properly and that sort of thing for the first year or so that he was in office. But uh, as the regime change rhetoric started to intensify on this side, uh, the administration in Iran became more and more repressive. And certainly in the last couple of months, we've seen many more arrests. We've seen this terrible increase in, uh, in capital punishment and amputations and all these hideous things that really had not happened to, to such an extent uh, when, uh, when Hatemi was president. And I think it's very unfortunate. Again, I think it argues for a different U.S. posture because if the United States is no longer threatening uh, the military option and threatening the regime, then the regime doesn't have the same excuse to crack down. It's, it's not a guarantee. These are v some of these very, very uh, awful people. I mean, I think of some of the people who are ministers now in the Iranian government, it makes you shudder. And my own good friend Hala Esfandiari was one of a number of Iranian Americans who was thrown into Evan prison uh, last year uh, as a, a signal to Iranians, you know, don't, don't think you're going to get your liberty anytime soon. But I still think a change in U.S. posture over time could have an impact. Yeah. You mentioned that... Um Iranians spontaneously demonstrated in the streets in support of the United States after 9-11. So I was wondering if you could speak a little more about those uh, pro-Western tendencies among mm -hmm. much of the populace and uh, in terms of is it, is it generational thing, what is it mm -hmm. for the future, et cetera? Sure. You know, it's, it's a lot of people say, oh, Iran is the most pro-American country in the Middle East. And I think that's true among the Iranian people, but that's a little bit too facile. Uh, there was a study that was done uh, by Reader's Digest in 2006. They did a, a major poll, and they found that among Iranians 45 and older, the U.S. was very popular. Uh, among younger Iranians, interestingly enough, I mean, aspects of U.S. culture are very popular, certainly dress and music and so on. But uh, the U.S. system of government was not admired that much. When asked who their favorite foreign leader was, most of them said Vladimir Putin. These are the younger Iranians. And there's also been uh, a resurgence of a kind of... Uh, superstitious uh, folk religion among the very young, you know, the belief in the Mahdi, the Messiah returning, the hidden imam who disappeared, you know, in, in the, was it 7th century, 9th century, 9th century, uh, returning to, to save the world, that sort of thing. So I think it's a little too facile to say they're all pro-American. A lot of people just go to Iran, they go to North Tehran, which is the wealthy part, and they go to parties, uh, you know, and they think that's all of Iran. That's not all of Iran. That is a, a slice, which is important. But I do have a lot of hope for the young people in that country because they're very wired. Um, uh, your own Abbas Milani uh, contributed to an article I wrote some years back about the internet. Uh, Iran has something like 10 million or 15 million possibly by now internet users, which is extraordinary in a population of only uh, of 70 million. You know, this is a developing country. It's not a first world country. And young people are so wired. Um, I remember I went hiking in the uh, Alborz Mountains outside Tehran, the beautiful, beautiful mountains where you can ski or hike. And uh, I started chatting with a young girl who was kind of just walking next to me. And uh, 
at the end of our conversation, she, she gave me her card, which had her email on it. So I went back to my hotel. I sent her an email, um, and she immediately responded. And, you know, and I met her the next day. I mean, she told me that she surfs the web. She has, you know, boyfriends that she in, – in South Carolina, North Carolina, people that she – you know, the equivalent of a Facebook. I mean, I, I don't know if Iranians can get on Facebook, but actually, wait a minute. Yes, they can. I just got an email today from a young man in Tehran who wanted to friend me on Facebook who knew an Iranian journalist who I know who's outside the country. So they even are onto Facebook. And 70% of Iranians' population is under the age of 30. They are not going to put up with this crap much longer. They really will not. And if the U.S. can just, you know, hold its breath and be patient and give Iran a little bit of time and not go barging in there the way we did in Iraq, I think there's a real chance that this 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 uh, system can recalibrate and can change. Uh, the supreme leader is uh, is old. He's sick. He supposedly has cancer. He could die. They'll get a new supreme leader. We really don't know what's going to happen. So I think we have to leave it to the Iranians to try to fix the system. Another important factor is the young women. Uh, one of the positive aspects of, of the revolution has been that it allowed uh, lower middle class and, and middle class, working class women to get an education. In the past, they would not leave the house because they wanted to be veiled, and the Shah would not let women wear the veil. It was prohibited and discouraged everywhere, and, and certainly in public places. Well, Khomeini came in, and he said everybody has to wear the veil, and so young women put it on. Guess what? 65% of the students in universities in Iran now are women. So it's had a, a reverse effect. Now, they may wear the veil and, and, and think nothing of it, but they want their rights. They want to be able to use those educations and, uh, and have jobs that are equivalent to those of men. So I think the seeds have been sown for uh, a transformation of that country if the external environment allows it to happen. Uh, yes? Uh, does the U.S. have any plans for a replacement government? <laughs> Is it going to be the case that if it falls internally or externally, then everyone's going to scratch their head and say, now what? I don't think the U.S. has a clue who would be the next leader of Iran. You know, there's been some talk about the son of the Shah who lives in uh, who lives outside Washington, D.C. Uh, there was a flurry of interest in him uh, after 9-11. I remember uh, interviewing Iranians. I was there in December of 2001, and some of them had watched him on um, broadcasts from Los Angeles, you know, the satellite, uh, Iranian emigre satellite stations in L.A., and he'd given some speeches, and, you know, he'd, he'd gotten a little bit of a flurry of interest. But most people thought, no, he really wasn't, you know, up to it. And, and he hadn't been in the country for all these years, so how could he possibly know how to fix things? Uh, there's an opposition group called the Mujahideen Hulk, which, you, which Iranians are familiar with, which claims that it can provide the new leader for Iran. But this is a cult. Uh, it's a very strange organization, and it's despised by Iranians in Iran because it took sides with Iraq against Iran during the Iran-Iraq war. So there's really, you know, no individual – I mean, I think there are plenty of Iranians that I've met um, who would be capable of running that country. There are still uh, people who belong to what's called the Freedom Party, who were supporters of Mossadegh but kind of got cut out after, after the revolution by the uh, religious forces. There are a lot, of pe a lot of clerics, religious people, who don't like the current regime and would like to get rid of the system that's known as velayat e This is the system where you have a cleric who is the supreme leader who gives guidance to, to the whole system. Uh, most of the people I've talked to there who, who are of, of a reform bent, 
expect that eventually the role of supreme leader will become ceremonial like the king of England and Iran will have its president and its parliament and, and that's how it will function. These clerical bodies that, that, that exist in a kind of dual fashion throughout the system will, will fade away over time and, and I think that's a realistic, uh, a realistic goal. But Iranians will choose their own leaders. They have plenty of capable, well-educated people who can, can run that country. Yes? criticism of the Bush administration and kind of objective coverage of what they're kind of doing as a journalist. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I, I try to, to give them their due in all the stories that I've written uh, for USA Today and certainly in my book I try to, you know, describe the, the, the frame of mind, the divisions within the administration which have, particularly in the first term, made it very difficult to have a coherent policy. I mean, the U.S. government was at war with itself. You had Rumsfeld and Cheney and Bush on one side, you had Colin Powell on the other, and a very weak Condi Rice, no offense to your Stanford uh, lady here, you know, kind of vacillating, but basically siding with the neocons and, and, and Bush because, you know, what could she do? Uh, it was only uh, Colin Powell who tried to keep contacts going with the Iranians and to reach out to them in, during the first, first term. Uh, so it was very difficult to have a coherent policy, and, and you know, I... I've certainly reported every step that the Bush administration has taken and, and the rationales that they've given for this. I've written about the sanctions which have been imposed and the fact that they have had an impact on the Iranian economy, particularly the banking sanctions, have had an impact. Um, but, you know, at the, end, at the end of the day, where are we? Has, this, has the policy succeeded? I ask you. Is Iran, you know, enriching uranium? Yes. Is Iran supporting militant groups throughout the Middle East? Yes. Does Iran have a president who talks about wiping Israel off the map? Yes. Is that a success? You tell me. You tell me. I, I'm just saying that it seems that you... I have opinions, yes, I do. Uh, and they've been formed by reporting and by actually going to that country, unlike many people who write about Iran in this country who've never been there. And, uh, and have no sense of it, and who've not followed the policies over the years. But I criticize my own government. I mean, I criticize Clinton as well as Bush. Um, and I certainly criticize the Iranians. I, I interviewed uh, Hatemi um, when he came to the United States in uh, 2006. And I asked him if, in hindsight, he wasn't sorry that he hadn't been more proactive and, and tried to move faster uh, to improve relations with the U.S. while Clinton was still in office. And he said yes. He said he was sorry. And he should have done more. But, you know, they thought the Republicans would be better for them than the Democrats. And so they waited, and it was a mistake. Um, yes. Uh, oh, yes. No, all right. The gentleman in the striped shirt. Could you comment on the significance of the American role in the Iraq-Iran war? Sure. Um, I mean, one has to understand that this was right after the Iranian Revolution, and the U.S. Uh, assessment was that Iran was more of a threat to the region than Iraq. Um, at that time, there was an effort by the U.S. and also the Arab countries to, to uh, halt the spread of the Islamic Revolution. There was a lot of fear that Islamic fundamentalist movements were going to come to power all throughout the region. And so all the Arab states uh, got behind uh, Iraq. Really, most of the world got behind Iraq. And, of course, it was 
to a great extent, Iran, uh, Iran's fault because of the hostage crisis. You know, they seized these Americans, held them for 444 days, and Saddam took advantage of this to, to attack because Iran was so isolated. The U.S. had broken diplomatic relations with Iran. Nobody was going to feel sorry for Iran while, while it was executing, you know, supporters of the Shah and holding Americans hostage. So they sort of did it to themselves, but the U.S. sided very much with Iraq. Uh, and it gave Iraq uh, intelligence inform information, satellite photos that helped Iraq to fight Iran, gave them the precursors for chemical weapons, which were used against the Iranians to devastating effect. But of course, the U.S. also played a little game with something called Iran-Contra. Uh, in the mid-'80s, uh, at the behest of the Israelis, who saw Iraq as the bigger threat than Iran, interestingly, the U.S. sold weapons to Iran and used the proceeds to support anti-communist guerrillas in Nicaragua. This was uh, illegal. It was against the wishes of the U.S. Congress. And it, it was discovered and it nearly brought down the, uh, the Reagan administration, the second Reagan term. But by and large, if you look at the whole scope of it, the U.S. did very much side with Iraq. And the thought was that Saddam would be grateful and would become a great buddy of the U.S. after the end of the Iran-Iraq war. Of course, he turned around and invaded Kuwait, so so much for that policy. Yeah, I think it was important. I mean, the, the help that the U.S. gave, I actually went to Iraq several times during that period. I was based in Cairo during the, the 80s. Uh, it was important. It gave Iraq very important intelligence and equipment, which it used to slaughter and slaughter and slaughter. And eventually, Iran was simply exhausted and had to accept a, a ceasefire. Uh, by 1988. They simply could not go on. So it was very important. And of course, the Europeans also, the Germans, others, uh, the Russians, the Chinese, everybody, the Arab uh, governments, Saudi Arabia, they were just pouring money into Iraq so that it could, uh, it could defeat uh, Iran. Yes, sir? Uh, relative to... Uh, Mani Najad. Yeah. I'm a dinner jacket. Than that. Yeah. I had heard recently that that was a function of a mistranslation of his comments. Yeah, well, it's a, it is slightly. I mean, he was quoting the Khomeini who, who said this. The, the idea was that, that, that not that Iran would wipe Israel off the map, but that Israel would be destroyed because it didn't have a right to exist and it would fade away. Uh, Ahmadinejad has said several times that he believes that is the state of Israel as currently constituted will disappear like the old Soviet Union did because it's unjust. It's unjust to the Palestinians. And he has this, this uh, formula where all the Palestinians in the world get to vote on what kind of state they should have and, and, you know, and what it should be. Not all the Jews, mind you, but all the Palestinians get to vote. It's needless to say a bit of, an, of a, of a non-starter. Uh, he has softened some of his language language on the Holocaust also. Um, again, you know, he likes to, he likes attention. He's the fourth of seven children and he has a, a face that only a mother could love. Um, and he loves attention, good, bad, or indifferent. And he said these things and I don't think he really realized how much attention it would get. But when it, it created this uproar, he kept repeating it because he loved the controversy. And he likes to, he likes to grandstand in front of the third world and the wider Muslim world and especially the Arab world. He loves to show up the Arab leaders by saying he's more pro-Palestinian than they are. So that's part of it. Iranians, in my experience, they have sympathy for the Palestinians, but they really don't support the Palestinian cause to that extent, and they don't like Iranian money, oil money, going to support all these Arab groups. They're, in my experience, more anti-Arab than they are anti-Jew. 
uh, you know, Jews have lived in, in Persia for thousands of years. There's still 25,000 Jews in Iran, which is the largest Jewish population uh, in the Middle East outside Israel. So if things were really that dreadful, you know, they'd all be gone. And the, um, the Iranian state television has tried to sort of compensate for, for their president's loud mouth by putting on a show. It's very popular. It's about an Iranian diplomat in France during World War II who saves French Jews by giving them Iranian passports. And it explains what the Holocaust is. Most Iranians, particularly young Iranians, don't even know. So, you know, it's, it's uh, I think... Uh, uh, Ahmadinejad, we, I was at a dinner with him in New York when he came to the UN in September, a private dinner, and he, uh, one of the, we all asked him questions, and one of the people said, uh, asked him or told him that, do you know you're being compared to Adolf Hitler all over the United States, and how do you feel about that? And uh, he said Adolf Hitler was a despicable individual who was responsible for the deaths of 60 million people. So, you know, he's even Ahmadinejad, and he's a pretty narrow-minded character, mind you. Even Ahmadinejad has a little bit more uh, nuance than you might expect uh, from what you read in the sort of mainstream, mainstream press. Uh, somebody who hasn't asked a question? You've asked, but go ahead again. Have you asked? No. No, no go ahead, please. Uh, Let's the role of I Forming and fashioning U.S. policy. The, sorry, the role of who? Um, Israeli-American. Oh, APEC. Yeah. It's it's and, been big, yeah. And also, is Israel driving U.S. Mm -hmm. policy or vice versa? Uh, the neocons are using Israel mm -hmm. as a tool to uh, basically fashion the U.S. policy in the region. Is you know APEC and the and 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 a certain group of pro-Israel supporters have been very very involved in this Iran policy, and I, I'd have to I don't know which came first did Iran start supporting Palestinian terrorist groups or did Israel start lobbying against Iran? There's a relationship there, uh, clearly. But it was in the early 90s, and this is before I started covering the story in in in, in detail when the Israelis started to beat the drum. Uh, and particularly, I mean, it was Republicans, people like Senator Alphonse D'Amato, who was a senator from New York, who were very, very strongly in support of, of sanctions against Iran in, in, in the mid-'90s. Uh, now, Iran had a missile program at that time. It wasn't so much the nuclear program, but the Israelis were worried about the missile program that the Iranians had. And after the removal of Saddam Hussein, they switched from seeing Iraq as the bigger threat to them and saw Iran as the bigger potential threat to them. And so they began to lobby the U.S. to be tough on Iran. Uh, certainly they were behind dual containment. Martin Indyk, who was the uh, gentleman who came up with this concept, uh, is very close to APEC. He's a former uh, head of something called the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, which is a think tank that was created pretty much by uh, pro-Israel groups in the late 1980s. So they were very much behind it. Uh, but, you know, of course, I mean, do they represent the majority of American Jews? No, I don't think they do. It's just this very potent lobby group. And they've been very supportive of new sanctions, and a lot of the really uh, uh, scary rhetoric that we've heard has come out. Uh, I, I don't know. I haven't talked to Israelis lately. They, they you know, they talk a good game. They talk about keeping the military option on the table. Uh, but I think there's also an understanding of what the downside of that could be for Israel. We got a preview of that in 2006 when uh, there was the war between Israel and Hezbollah in Lebanon, which was didn't come out exactly the way the Israelis had hoped. And if uh, Israel were to attack Iran, you could be sure that Hezbollah would retaliate. And, of course, Iran would retaliate against Americans in Iraq. We've got over 100,000 potential American hostages uh, in, in Iraq 
with our military and our embassy and so on. So I think they want the Iranians to think that they would attack. They want to scare them. But I'm not sure even Israel would actually uh, go that far. And a, a negotiating process that also took Israel's interests into account could you know, could be more helpful to Israel than the current stalemate. So I, I you know, I think there, there are different opinions even within APEC about, about where to go. But certainly in the mid-90s, starting in, in the early mid-90s, they, they really began to beat the drums against Iran. Yes, the back, and then I think this will be it. That's the last about, question. About nine months ago, a member of the House of Lords who's closely involved with the Iran policy formulation is quoted as saying in a BBC interview that we will continue to oppose regime change in Iran. Mm -hmm. I wonder if in your research and in interviews, uh, what you have come across that you can share with us regarding the opposition of the Europeans, in particular the UK, mm -hmm. to a supposed US policy of regime change. Uh, most, Europe, yeah, most Europeans are opposed to it, although uh, Sarkozy <laughs> has sort of become the new Blair, and, uh, and he certainly talked a, a bit tougher, although I think even the French would not want it. I mean, you know, my God, the, the region is, is unstable enough. We really want yet another violent effort at regime change in, in a country of 70 million people. Uh, you know, it's just it's insanity. So I think, uh, I think the Europeans are very opposed uh, certainly the Russians, Chinese, are very opposed. And uh, uh, although Bush continues to say he keeps the military option on the table, I don't know of many other people who agree with him. So I'm going to stop there. If anybody would like to buy the book, I will go outside and, and happily sign your, your copy. And uh, I really appreciate your coming. Thank you very much. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.